Chapter Five, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Five, containing a full account of the installation of Mr. Pecksniff's new pupil into the bosom of Mr. Pecksniff's family, with all the festivities held on that occasion, and the great enjoyment of Mr. Pinch. Part One. The best of architects and land surveyors kept a horse, in whom the enemies already mentioned more than once in these pages, pretended to detect a fanciful resemblance to his master. Not in his outward person, for he was a raw-boned, haggard horse, always on a much shorter allowance of corn than Mr. Pecksniff, but in his moral character, wherein, said they, he was full of promise, but of no performance. He was always, in a manner, going to go, and never going. When at his slowest rate of travelling he would sometimes lift up his legs so high and display such mighty action that it was difficult to believe he was doing less than fourteen miles an hour, and he was for ever so perfectly satisfied with his own speed and so little disconcerted by opportunities of comparing himself with the fastest trotters that the illusion was the more difficult of resistance. He was a kind of animal who infused into the breasts of strangers a lively sense of hope and possessed all those who knew him better with a grim despair. In what respect, having these points of character, he might be fairly likened to his master, that good man's slanderers only can explain. But it is a melancholy truth, and a deplorable instance of the uncharitableness of the world, that they made the comparison. In this horse, and the hooded vehicle, whatever its proper name might be, to which he was usually harnessed, it was more like a gig with a tumour than anything else. All Mr. Pinch's thoughts and wishes centred one bright frosty morning, for with this gallant equipage he was about to drive to Salisbury alone, there to meet with the new pupil, and thence to bring him home in triumph. Blessings on thy simple heart, Tom Pinch! How proudly dost thou button up that scanty coat, called by a sad misnomer, for these many years a great one, and how thoroughly, as with thy cheerful voice, thou pleasantly adjurest Sam the hostler not to let him go yet. Dost thou believe that quadruped desires to go, and would go if he might? Who could repress a smile of love for thee, Tom Pinch, and not ingest at thy expense, for thou art poor enough already, heaven knows, to think that such a holiday as lies before thee should awaken that quick flow and hurry of the spirits in which thou settest down again, almost untasted on the kitchen window-sill, that great white mug, put by by thy own hands last night, that breakfast might not hold thee late, and layest yonder crust upon the seat beside thee, to be eaten on the road when thou art calmer in thy high rejoicing. Who, as thou drivest off a happy man, and noddest with a grateful lovingness to Pecksniff in his nightcap at his chamber window, would not cry, Heaven speed thee, Tom, and send that thou wert going off for ever to some quiet home, where thou mightst live at peace, and sorrow should not touch thee. What better time for driving, riding, walking, moving through the air by any means, than a fresh frosty morning, when hope runs cheerily through the veins with the brisk blood, and tingles in the frame from head to foot? 
This was the glad commencement of a bracing day in early winter, such as may put the languid summer season, speaking of it when it can't be had, to the blush, and shame the spring for being sometimes cold by halves. The sheep-bells rang as clearly in the vigorous air as if they felt its wholesome influence like living creatures. The trees, in lieu of leaves or blossoms, shed upon the ground a frosty rime that sparkled as it fell, and might have been the dust of diamonds. So it was to Tom. From cottage chimneys smoke went streaming up high, high as if the earth had lost its grossness being so fair and must not be oppressed by heavy vapour. The crust of ice on the else rippling brook was so transparent and so thin in texture that the lively water might of its own free will have stopped, in Tom's glad mind it had, to look upon the lovely morning, and lest the sun should break this charm too eagerly, there moved between him and the ground a mist like that which waits upon the moon on summer nights, the very same to Tom, and wooed him to dissolve it gently. Tom Pinch went on, not fast, but with a sense of rapid motion which did just as well, and as he went all kinds of things occurred to keep him happy. Thus, when he came within sight of the turnpike, and was, oh, a long way off, he saw the tollman's wife, who had that moment checked a wagon, run back into the little house again like mad to say, she knew, that Mr. Pinch was coming up, and she was right. For when he drew within hail of the gate, forth rushed the tollman's children, shrieking in tiny chorus, Mr. Pinch! to Tom's intense delight. The very tollman, though an ugly chap in general, and one whom folks were rather shy of handling, came out himself to take the toll and give him rough good morning, and that with all this and a glimpse of the family breakfast on a little round table before the fire, the crust Tom Pinch had brought away with him acquired as rich a flavour as though it had been cut from a fairy loaf. But there was more than this. It was not only the married people and the children who gave Tom Pinch a welcome as he passed. No, no. Sparkling eyes and snowy breasts came hurriedly to many an upper casement as he clattered by, and gave him back his greeting, not stinted either, but sevenfold good measure. They were all merry, they all laughed, and some of the wickedest among them even kissed their hands as Tom looked back. For who minded poor Mr. Pinch? There was no harm in him. And now the morning grew so fair, and all things were so wide awake and gay, that the sun, seeming to say, Tom had no doubt he said, I can't stand it any longer, I must have a look, streamed out in radiant majesty. The mist, too shy and gentle for such lusty company, fled off, quite scared before it, and as it swept away, the hills and mounds and distant pasture-lands, teeming with placid sheep and noisy crows, came out as bright as though they were unrolled brand new for the occasion. In compliment to which discovery, the brook stood still no longer, but ran briskly off to bear the tidings to the water-mill three miles away. Mr. Pinch was jogging along, full of pleasant thoughts and cheerful influences, when he saw, upon the path before him, going in the same direction with himself, a traveller on foot, who walked with a light, quick step, and sang as he went, for certain in a very loud voice, but not unmusically. He was a young fellow, of some five or six-and-twenty, perhaps, and was dressed in such a free and fly-away fashion that the long ends of his loose red neckcloth were streaming out behind him quite as often as before, and the bunch of bright winter berries in the buttonhole of his velveteen coat 
was as visible to Mr. Pinch's rearward observation as if he had worn that garment wrong side foremost. He continued to sing with so much energy that he did not hear the sound of wheels until it was close behind him, when he turned a whimsical face and a very merry pair of blue eyes on Mr. Pinch and checked himself directly. "'Why, Mark!' said Tom Pinch, stopping. "'Who'd have thought of seeing you here? Well, this is surprising.' Mark touched his hat, and said, with a very sudden decrease of vivacity, that he was going to Salisbury. "'And how spruce you are, too,' said Mr. Pinch, surveying him with great pleasure. "'Really, I didn't think you were half such a tight-made fellow, Mark.' "'Thank you, Mr. Pinch. Pretty well for that, I believe. It's not my fault, you know. With regard to being spruce, sir, that's where it is, you see.' And here he looked particularly gloomy. "'Where what is?' Mr. Pinch demanded." "'Where the aggravation of it is. "'Any man may be in good spirits and good temper when he's well-dressed. "'There ain't much credit in that. "'If I was very ragged and very jolly, "'then I should begin to feel I had gained a point, Mr. Pinch.' "'So you were singing just now to bear up, as it were, "'against being well-dressed, eh, Mark?' said Pinch. "'Your conversation's always equal to print, sir,' rejoined Mark, with a broad grin. "'That was it.' "'Well,' cried Pinch, "'you are the strangest young man, Mark, I ever knew in my life. "'I always thought so, but now I am quite certain of it. "'I am going to Salisbury, too. "'Will you get in? "'I shall be very glad of your company.' "'The young fellow made his acknowledgments and accepted the offer, "'stepping into the carriage directly "'and seating himself on the very edge of the seat "'with his body half out of it "'to express his being there on sufferance "'and by the politeness of Mr. Pinch.' As they went along, the conversation proceeded after this manner. "'I more than half believed just now, seeing you so very smart,' said Pinch, "'that you must be going to be married, Mark.' "'Well, sir, I've thought of that, too,' he replied. "'There might be some credit in being jolly with a wife, "'especially if the children had the measles and that, "'and was very fractious indeed. "'But I'm almost afraid to try it. "'I don't see my way clear.' "'You're not very fond of anybody, perhaps?' said Pinch. "'Not particular, sir, I think.' "'But the way would be, you know, Mark, according to your views of things,' said Mr. Pinch, "'to marry somebody you didn't like, and who was very disagreeable.' "'So it would, sir, but that might be carrying out a principle a little too far, mightn't it?' "'Perhaps it might,' said Mr. Pinch, at which they both laughed gaily. "'Lord bless you, sir,' said Mark. "'You don't half know me, though.' "'I don't believe there ever was a man as could come out so strong under circumstances that would make other men miserable, as I could if I could only get a chance. But I can't get a chance. It's my opinion that nobody never will know half of what's in me unless something very unexpected turns up, and I don't see any prospect of that. I'm a-going to leave the dragon, sir.' "'Going to leave the dragon?' cried Mr. Pinch, looking at him with great astonishment. "'Why, Mark, you take my breath away.' "'Yes, sir,' he rejoined, looking straight before him and a long way off, "'as men do sometimes when they cogitate profoundly. "'What's the use of my stopping at the Dragon? "'It ain't at all the sort of place for me. "'When I left London, I'm a Kentish man by birth, though, "'and took that situation here, "'I quite made up my mind that it was the dullest little out-of-the-way corner in England, "'and that there would be some credit in being jolly under such circumstances.' "'But, Lord, there's no dullness at the dragon. "'Skittles, cricket, quoits, nine-pins, comic songs, choruses, "'company round the chimney-corner every winter's evening. 
any man could be jolly at the dragon. There's no credit in that. But if common report be true for once, Mark, as I think it is, being able to confirm it by what I know myself, said Mr. Pinch, you are the cause of half this merriment, and set it going. There may be something in that, too, sir, answered Mark, but that's no consolation. Well, said Mr. Pinch, after a short silence, his usually subdued tone being even now more subdued than ever, I can hardly think enough of what you tell me. Why, what will become of Mrs. Lupin, Mark? Mark looked more fixedly before him, and further off still, as he answered that he didn't suppose it would be much of an object to her. There were plenty of smart young fellows as would be glad of the place. He knew a dozen himself. That's probable enough, said Mr. Pinch, but I am not at all sure that Mrs. Lupin would be glad of them. Why, I always supposed that Mrs. Lupin and you would make a match of it, Mark, and so did every one, as far as I know. I never, Mark replied in some confusion, said nothing as was in a direct way courting like to her, nor she to me. But I don't know what I mightn't do one of these odd times in which she mightn't say an answer. Well, sir, that wouldn't suit. Not to be landlord of the dragon, Mark, cried Mr. Pinch. No, sir, certainly not, returned the other, withdrawing his gaze from the horizon and looking at his fellow traveller. Why, that would be the ruin of a man like me. I go and sit down comfortably for life, and no man never finds me out. What would be the credit of the landlord of the dragons being jolly? Why, he couldn't help it if he tried. Does Mrs. Lupin know you are going to leave her? Mr. Pinch inquired. I haven't broke it to her yet, sir, but I must. I'm looking out this morning for something new and suitable, he said, nodding towards the city. What kind of thing now? Mr. Pinch demanded. "'I was thinking,' Mark replied, "'of something in the grave-digging way.' "'Good gracious, Mark!' cried Mr. Pinch. "'It's a good, damp, wormy sort of business, sir,' said Mark, shaking his head argumentatively. "'And there might be some credit in being jolly with one's mind in that pursuit, "'unless grave-diggers is usually given that way, which would be a drawback. "'You don't happen to know how that is in general, do you, sir?' No, said Mr. Pinch, I don't indeed. I never thought upon the subject. In case of that not turning out as well as one could wish, you know, said Mark, musing again, there's other businesses. Undertaking now, that's gloomy. There might be credit to be gained there. A broker's man in a poor neighborhood wouldn't be bad, perhaps. A jailer sees a deal of misery. A doctor's man is in the very midst of murder. A bailiff's aunt a lively office, naturally. Even a tax-gatherer must find his feelings rather worked upon at times. There's lots of trades in which I should have an opportunity, I think. Mr. Pinch was so perfectly overwhelmed by these remarks that he could do nothing but occasionally exchange a word or two on some indifferent subject, and cast sidelong glances at the bright face of his odd friend, who seemed quite unconscious of his observation, until they reached a certain corner of the road, close upon the outskirts of the city, when Mark said he would jump down there, if he pleased. "'But bless my soul, Mark,' said Mr. Pinch, who in the progress of his observation just then made the discovery that the bosom of his companion's shirt was as much exposed as if it was midsummer, and was ruffled by every breath of air. "'Why don't you wear a waistcoat?' "'What's the good of one, sir?' asked Mark. "'Good of one,' said Mr. Pinch, "'why to keep your chest warm?' "'Lord love you, sir,' cried Mark, "'you don't know me.' My chest don't want no warming. Even if it did, 
"'What would no waistcoat bring it to? "'Inflammation of the lungs, perhaps? "'Well, there'd be some credit in being jolly "'with the inflammation of the lungs.' "'As Mr. Pinch returned no other answer "'than such as was conveyed in his breathing very hard, "'and opening his eyes very wide, "'and nodding his head very much, "'Mark thanked him for his ride, "'and without troubling him to stop, "'jumped lightly down. "'And away he fluttered with his red neckerchief "'and his open coat, down a cross-lane, turning back from time to time to nod to Mr. Pinch, and looking one of the most careless, good-humoured, comical fellows in life. His late companion, with a thoughtful face, pursued his way to Salisbury. Mr. Pinch had a shrewd notion that Salisbury was a very desperate sort of place, an exceeding wild and dissipated city, and when he had put up the horse and given the hostler to understand that he would look in again in the course of an hour or two to see him take his corn, he set forth on a stroll about the streets with a vague and not unpleasant idea that they teemed with all kinds of mystery and bedevilment. To one of his quiet habits this little delusion was greatly assisted by the circumstance of its being market-day, and the thoroughfares about the market-place being filled with carts, horses, donkeys, baskets, wagons, garden-stuff, meat, tripe, pies, poultry, and huckster's wares of every opposite description and possible variety of character. Then there were young farmers and old farmers, with smock-frocks, brown greatcoats, drab greatcoats, red-worsted comforters, leather leggings, wonderful-shaped hats, hunting-whips and rough sticks, standing about in groups, or talking noisily together on the tavern steps, or paying and receiving huge amounts of greasy wealth, with the assistance of such bulky pocket-books, that when they were in their pockets it was apoplexy to get them out, and when they were out it was spasms to get them in again. Also there were farmers' wives in beaver bonnets and red cloaks, riding shaggy horses purged of all earthly passions, who went soberly into all manner of places without desiring to know why, and who, if required, would have stood stock-still in a china shop, with a complete dinner service at each hoof. Also a great many dogs who were strongly interested in the state of the market and the bargains of their masters, and a great confusion of tongues, both brute and human. Mr. Pinch regarded everything exposed for sale with great delight, and was particularly struck by the itinerant cutlery, which he considered of the very keenest kind, insomuch that he purchased a pocket-knife with seven blades in it, and not a cut, as he afterwards found out, among them. When he had exhausted the market-place, and watched the farmers safe into the market-dinner, he went back to look after the horse. Having seen him eat unto his heart's content, he issued forth again, to wander round the town and regale himself with the shop-windows, previously taking a long stare at the bank, and wondering in what direction underground the caverns might be where they kept the money and turning to look back at one or two young men who passed him, whom he knew to be articled to solicitors in the town, and who had a sort of fearful interest in his eyes, as jolly dogs who knew a thing or two, and kept it up tremendously. But the shops! First of all there were the jewellers' shops, with all the treasures of the earth displayed therein, and such large silver watches hanging up in every pane of glass, that if there were anything but first-rate goers, it certainly was not because the works could decently complain of want of room. In good sooth, they were big enough, and perhaps, as the saying is, ugly enough, to be the most correct of all mechanical performers. 
In Mr. Pinch's eyes, however, they were smaller than Geneva ware, and when he saw one very bloated watch announced as a repeater, gifted with the uncommon power of striking every quarter of an hour inside the pocket of its happy owner, he almost wished that he were rich enough to buy it. But what were even gold and silver, precious stones and clockwork, to the bookshops, whence a pleasant smell of paper freshly pressed came issuing forth, awakening instant recollections of some new grammar had at school, long time ago, with Master Pinch, Grove House Academy, inscribed in faultless writing on the fly-leaf, that whiff of Russia leather, too, and all those rows on rows of volumes neatly ranged within, what happiness did they suggest! and in the window were the spick-and-span new works from London, with the title pages, and sometimes even the first page of the first chapter laid wide open, tempting unwary men to begin to read the book, and then, in the impossibility of turning over, to rush blindly in and buy it. Here, too, were the dainty frontispiece and trim vignette, pointing like hand-posts on the outskirts of great cities, to the rich stock of incident beyond, and store of books with many a grave portrait and time-honoured name, whose matter he knew well and would have given minds to have, in any form, upon the narrow shelf beside his bed at Mr. Pecksniff's. What a heart-breaking shop it was! There was another, not quite so bad at first, but still a trying shop, where children's books were sold, and where poor Robinson Crusoe stood alone in his might with dog and hatchet, goat-skin cap and fowling-pieces, calmly surveying Philip Quarn and the host of imitators round him, and calling Mr. Pinch to witness that he, of all the crowd, impressed one solitary footprint on the shore of boyish memory, whereof the tread of generations should not stir the lightest grain of sand. And there, too, were the Persian tales with flying chests, and students of enchanted books shut up for years in caverns, and there, too, was Abadah, the merchant, with the terrible little old woman hobbling out of the box in his bedroom, and there the mighty talisman, the rare Arabian nights, with Kasim Baba, divided by four, like the ghost of a dreadful sum, hanging up all gory in the robber's cave, which matchless wonders, coming fast on Mr. Pinch's mind, did so rub up and chafe that wonderful lamp within him, that when he turned his face towards the busy street, a crowd of phantoms waited on his pleasure, and he lived again, with new delight, the happy days before the Pecksniff era. He had less interest now in the chemist's shops, with their great glowing bottles, with smaller repositories of brightness in their very stoppers, and in their agreeable compromises between medicine and perfumery, in the shape of toothsome lozenges and virgin honey. Neither had he the least regard, but he never had much, for the tailors where the newest metropolitan waistcoat patterns were hanging up, which by some strange transformation always looked amazing there, and never appeared at all like the same thing anywhere else. But he stopped to read the playbill at the theatre, and surveyed the doorway with a kind of awe, which was not diminished when a sallow gentleman with long dark hair came out, and told a boy to run home to his lodgings and bring down his broadsword. Mr. Pinch stood rooted to the spot on hearing this, and might have stood there until dark, but that the old cathedral bell began to ring for vesper service, on which he tore himself away. Now the organist's assistant was a friend of Mr. Pinch's, which was a good thing, for he too was a very quiet, gentle soul, and had been, like Tom, a kind of old-fashioned boy at school, though well liked by the noisy fellow too. As good luck would have it, 
Tom always said he had great good luck. The assistant chanced that very afternoon to be on duty by himself, with no one in the dusty organ loft but Tom. So while he played, Tom helped him with the stops, and finally the service being just over, Tom took the organ himself. It was then turning dark, and the yellow light that streamed in through the ancient windows in the choir was mingled with a murky red. As the grand tones resounded through the church, they seemed, to Tom, to find an echo in the depth of every ancient tomb, no less than in the deep mystery of his own heart. Great thoughts and hopes came crowding on his mind as the rich music rolled upon the air, and yet among them, something more grave and solemn in their purpose, but the same, were all the images of that day, down to its very lightest recollection of childhood. The feeling that the sounds awakened, in the moment of their existence, seemed to include his whole life and being, and, as the surrounding realities of stone and wood and glass grew dimmer in the darkness, these visions grew so much the brighter that Tom might have forgotten the new pupil and the expectant master, and have sat there pouring out his grateful heart till midnight, but for a very earthy old verger insisting on locking up the cathedral forthwith. So he took leave of his friend with many thanks, groped his way out as well as he could into the now lamp-lighted streets, and hurried off to get his dinner. End of chapter 5, part 1